from APM American Public Media. This is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. How much standardized testing is too much? Minnesota Governor Mark Dayton announced last week that he wants to cut the amount of required state and federal testing in the public schools by a third. Dayton joins a growing movement of politicians, parents, and teachers across the country who are asking state lawmakers to reduce high-stakes testing. In a new book, NPR education blogger Anya Kamenetz questions the value of standardized testing. The book is titled The Test, Why Our Schools Are Obsessed with Standardized Testing, But You Don't Have to Be. Kamenetz sat down with ARW correspondent Emily Hanford to talk about why she decided to write about testing. You know, Emily, I didn't set out to write this book. I had written two previous books about higher education. My last book, DIYU, was all about innovations in higher education and, and new ways to achieve you know, quality and relevance and access. And I wanted to write a similar kind of book around K-12 education because I'd had a kid of my own. And I started looking at all the innovations going on in K-12 and blended learning, maker spaces, project-based learning, 21st century skills, and all this great stuff happening. But what I saw again and again was that at least in public schools, those kinds of innovations were really being pushed to the margins. And the reason for that was the need to conform to standardized test requirements. And so uh, after many discussions with my agent and other people, I realized I had to sort of turn the book around a little bit and make it a book about uh, you know, the issue of testing itself. So what we have done since No Child Left Behind, which went into effect in 2002, is add a lot of tests in in pursuit of this goal, and it's unclear whether it's made much of an impact. We might have, we might be where we are without them. So, just how much time is testing taking up? How much time are we spending on tests and test prep in American schools today? Well, so it it depends on who you ask, but I think that there's a broad consensus from the Secretary of Education to the head of you know state school officers to the large urban districts that the testing going on is too much. And the reason for that is so students are mandated by federal law to take one test each year in math and reading in grades three through eight, plus one more in high school. Um, and that's not necessarily so much. But then what happens is that because states are being held accountable for the outcomes of these tests, they then have motivation to administer practice tests. And they want to administer diagnostic tests because they want to get the results right away. And the state tests don't come back until a year. the year is over. Um, they want to administer benchmark tests in the middle of the year to predict how the students are do- going to do in the state exam. And so a survey by the Council of Chief State School Officers and the Council of Great City Schools found um, that students are taking 113 standardized tests in total by the time they graduate, and that these tests are administered for a total of 23 distinct different purposes. You mentioned in the book a conversation with a very good friend of yours who's a principal at a public school in the Bronx, and she surprised you by defending the tests. What was her argument for them? Right. So my friend's argument for the tests was that they had forced a concentration on the students that she teaches, the most disadvantaged students in the system, that somehow before she came to, you know, education, as she learned in education school, that those students were being forgotten about and the standards for them were very low. And now the same standards are being applied to all students. And she furthermore felt that the test scores were a way to 
really impose accountability on parents uh, who don't necessarily want to get involved in their kids' education or who don't believe that their kids are not doing that well. The test scores are a, provide a way to kind of start that conversation. And then on teachers as well, for herself as a principal, you know, test scores are a way to kind of see what's happening in, in her different classrooms. So what do you make of that argument that that we need standardized tests to, you know, ensure a certain quality of education and in particular to ensure equity? Well, I think that, you know, the equity argument that has been, you know, part of No Child Left Behind since the beginning is probably the strongest argument in favor of uh, national standardized tests. But, you know, as I kind of try to tease out in the book, there's at least three different separate issues that come along with testing. One is the sheer number of tests that students are taking and the way that it's sort of defining the the experience of school. The second is the stakes that are attached to these tests. And then the third and sort of broader ultimate question is, what are we testing for? Are we testing the right things? Are we testing them in the right ways? Um, and I think that you can be in favor of disaggregating test results and looking at the performance of all students without necessarily saying the only way to do that is a federally mandated annual standardized test. And the point, of course, of the standardized testing, annual testing, is to improve education. So what do we know about how well it has worked? Well, uh, you know, the facts are in d- in uh, debate, uh, but the, the, the findings that people most commonly cite is that there have been modest improvements in test scores. And here you get into a kind of a funny end run, right, because we're using test scores to talk about the impact of test scores. But if you talk about the national test, the NAEP, which has been given for many decades and is sort of the baseline of American student performance and is a, sampled, a sampling test, by the way, if you look at NAEP scores, um, there's been modest improvements over the last decade, very little decrease in the a- achievement gap between minority groups and white students. But the modest improvements in NAEP match the modest gains made in the decade before No Child Left Behind. And so there's an argument made that uh, although the evidence looks modestly in favor of No Child Left Behind, the same th- improvements might have happened if we had not had No Child Left Behind. So it's really hard to say that it's been a resounding success, certainly not in closing the achievement gap, which was the number one kind of argument made in favor of these tests. So one of the things that I think is happening is that we put into place this law that mandated annual tests. And then, as you mentioned before, we put a whole bunch of consequences, stakes attached to those tests. And I think that's really why you see so much test prep and benchmark tests and all that happening in schools. So in the book, you do talk about that. There's testing and then there's the accountability system that we have created around testing. Can you talk a little bit about what the accountability system is and how that's affecting the testing culture? Sure. So this is, I mean, accountability on its basic level, right? You visit consequences onto uh, states, onto schools, onto districts, onto teachers, and onto students for the outcomes of these tests. And what's happened is that ever since the beginning with No Child Left Behind, there's been far more sticks in the federal and state arsenal than there have been carrots. And so... There have at times been resources available to schools for things like, you know, after school tutoring programs. But what we see most often is we see schools being reorganized, having to come up with plans to uh, to change how they operate, having their leaders replaced or then being closed. And in the, the peak years uh, in, you know, the last uh, half of the decade under No Child Left Behind, you had thousands of schools being closed per year. And, you know, whether or not you feel that that's the best way to ensure that all students attend a high performing 
school, it's undeniable that the act of closing a neighborhood school leads to community resistance, leads to, you know, street protests in Newark and Chicago and Harlem, because uh, parents and students feel fairly or unfairly that their schools are being taken away from them. It does seem like the assumption uh, in the way that we've set up the accountability system in this country is that schools and teachers could be doing better if forced to do better. And bad test scores is a way to force them to do it. (laughs) And I guess the question that I ask myself as a reporter now is, it's not so clear that we know what to do, how to make schools better. You know, I think that's a really important point because the baseline argument that's often made in favor of testing is that it's somehow a way to catch or smoke out the bad teachers. And I was, you know, I was, I found myself in the office of ed tech uh, in Department of Education and uh, somebody was making a really passionate argument that the reason we need tests is because I was in a classroom last week in D.C. and the teacher was sleeping. You know, and and it's these kinds of stories that are told, and it it almost reminds me of like the welfare queen rhetoric of the 1980s, where it's like everything is premised on the idea that what we need to do is have policing on the federal level or the state level in order to catch bad teachers, uh, where, you know, you might look at things another way and say, well, what are the conditions under which teachers do their best work? What do high-performing teachers want and need to do a good job in in the classroom? And how do we know that that's actually happening? One of the things that you do very well in the book is uh, sort of spell out what happens to teachers in a system that is driven primarily by tests and, and the accountability system around tests and the kinds of choices that teachers are forced to make and how sort of teaching to the test ends up happening in schools. Can you talk about teaching to the test and what that is and, and how that ends up happening? Sure. So in a very straightforward way, you know, researchers have documented that teachers are spending more time on math and reading and less time on every other subject, including science and social studies and PE and the arts. And these are decisions that are made on a school-wide basis um, because schools are being held accountable for the outcomes of the tests. And the way that teachers respond, you know, they, they speak to it themselves. And I quote a teacher in the book who talks about, you know, I thought I was doing best by my students if I dropped everything and switched over to test prep so that they do well. And then I could get, you know, get the testing requirement off our backs. But what I found was that by teaching students to guess, to manipulate, to eliminate wrong answers, I was really teaching them to be lazy. I wasn't teaching them to ask questions. It wasn't a student-centered classroom. And indeed, again, this is borne out that when teachers are under the gun of a standardized test, they lecture more. There's more teacher-directed teaching. They race to cover more ground. Their teaching is less differentiated, so they're they're trying to push the slower students along. They're trying. They're not necessarily giving more advanced work to the students that might need to, you know, you know, might be already farther ahead. Um, and then overall, even in the even in the tested subjects. The type of teaching that we might like to see is not encouraged by the uh, imposition of a high-stakes test. I think there's a lot of agreement out there in, in education policy circles and among educators that what you've just described really is a problem and a problem that we need to fix in American schools. And for many people, the Common Core standards and the new tests that are coming along with them are a solution to this problem because the argument goes that the tests before weren't actually that good. Um, and so we were teaching to the test, but we weren't teaching to a good test. And if we have a better test, then there's nothing wrong with teaching to a test if you're teaching to a good test. But you don't buy that argument. You you say in the book that you think Common Core and the Common Core tests are going to make things worse. Why? 
Right. So over the last, you know, several years, since 2009 with Race to the Top, a rhetorical gap has opened up where the Department of Education spoke again and again and is still speaking in favor of, you know, annual standardized tests that they be high stakes. Uh, but at the same time, they've been saying, and the end, you're going to get much better tests very, very soon. So sort of implying that the tests that we're attaching such high stakes to actually weren't very good. And, you know, the educators that I found had a range of opinions about the, the usefulness of the Common Core per se. And some educators think it's a great um, set of standards and very helpful to use. But the consensus for those who have actually administered the tests, as well as those who have spent time looking at these tests, testing experts, is that... The new Common Core aligned tests created by Park and Smarter Balanced and also by Pearson, they don't necessarily live up to the promises of fewer, higher, deeper, of deeper learning, of better um, comprehension. And the reason for that is really simple. They're not any more expensive than the tests they're replacing. If you create a test that is you know, mostly machine gradable, that is about $30 per student to administer, it's not going to have a lot of very complex open-ended questions on it because those types of questions require people with subject matter expertise to take a little bit of time to grade them. And you can think about, you know, international baccalaureate or an AP test, with which requires documents, requires you to write an essay or several essays. That takes time and that takes money. Those tests takes, you know, they, they cost $75 per student. And so one of the big questions is, you know, we're spending a lot of money, not necessarily on the testing, but on the prepping and not to mention the distortion of the teaching and the curriculum. But it may be that the tests themselves are actually too cheap. I find it interesting the way that Common Core and the new tests, I think, is opening up a new kind of debate and awareness about the role of money uh, in education and the role of corporations and in particular the role of wealthy foundations. So it's both showing us how much influence they already have in education, and I think a lot of those players are now having more influence in education. And one of the most controversial figures um, in education these days is, is Bill Gates. You were able to get a a short interview with him for your book. And I want to ask you about something he said to you, because I I thought it was revealing and kind of startling. You asked him about whether he has concerns um, that a a test-driven educational system, you know, leaves little time for exploration and creativity and a project-driven approach, the kind of stuff you were hoping to find in K-12 schools when you started uh, writing this book, but then decided you had to write about testing instead because there wasn't enough of it going on. So, So you asked him about whether he was concerned about this, and he said, and this is a quote that you have in the book, you're not going to hurt a highly curious, self-motivated student. Unfortunately, that is a small percentage of the kids. I wonder what you made of that comment. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think by definition, it's an elitist statement, right? He's basically saying there's not a lot of Bill Gates out there, not a lot of geniuses, not a lot of people who would take time off school to pursue a passion as he did and actually do independent study and gain access to computers after hours so that he could teach himself to program in high school. And I think, you know, the point of view that the purpose of our public education system is to provide a minimal level of competence to a a vast majority of sort of people who don't have the funds, let's say, to access something better, Um, you know, that's a view of public education that many people do not find inspiring and they do not find particularly democratic. Um, You know, there are a lot of the, the most impassioned educators that I know are committed to the absolute opposite. You know, without exception, they would say, I 
believe every child can be motivated and I believe every child has curiosity in them, is born with curiosity, is passionately curious and just is waiting for that to be unlocked and opened up. So the idea that, you know, the type of education that Bill Gates experienced himself and the type that he promotes for his children, you know, both of his children go to private schools and he does as much as he can to encourage their curiosity and after hours and, and they look at TED Talks together, they they listen to the great courses um, and they, they spend hours talking about any question that, uh, that comes to their minds. Um, the idea that the kind of education that Bill Gates wants for his own children and for himself is different from his vision for public education more generally, I think is exactly the type of gap that people find most troubling. I also find it interesting because I think this idea that you're not going to hurt a highly curious, self-motivated student, I don't know about that. We're about to embark on a, on a big experiment here this spring where we're, most kids in America are going to take some form of these new common core tests. And they, they are, uh, by all measures, significantly more difficult. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, I think we still are testing a very narrow set of skills on these tests. They might, we might have changed things a little bit and ratcheted it up and made them, you know, asking more of kids. But we're still testing a really narrow range of things. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, education researchers would bear that out. Actually, motivation in kids is a fragile thing, and it can be crushed. And test anxiety affects 25 to 40 percent of test takers. You know, that's in research going back to the 60s, affects them severely enough to actually depress their scores. So, yes, there is a danger here. I mean, the idea that, you know, standardizing the curriculum and standardizing the tests by their, by its very nature, it makes it more difficult for teachers to do what teachers say they like to do, which is differentiate instruction for each student to be able to learn the material and access the material in the way that works the best for them and the way that really fits their their nature and their interests. So the irony, I think, of all this is that just as we are kind of doubling down on this idea of rigor and high standards and accountability, you know, research and data are showing us that uh, half of what students need to succeed or more has to do with these non-cognitive skills. It has to do with their social and emotional dispositions and skills and habits and mindsets. And so, you know, there might be a time not too far in the future where we would look back and say, a curriculum that takes away children's motivation in the name of having them drill on more skills is exactly the wrong idea. It's exactly not what um, we need to do if we want to set up a sixth grader for future success. Hmm. Well, your book is not all doom and gloom. I would say the, the entire second half is talking about possible solutions to the problems that you that you outline. So let's talk about those. Um, you know, one option for parents anyway is to just opt out, to, to refuse to let your kids take the test. Uh, what did you find out about who is choosing this option and, and why? That's exactly right. So the numbers are small. And they're not well documented in most places, although opt-out protests have made the news in over a dozen states uh, as of now. And in a few states, uh, lawmakers or uh, the attorney general or or the commissioner of education have affirmed the rights of students and parents to actually opt out under the law, even though technically it's against the law. In most places, though, opt-out protests are best seen as an act of civil disobedience. And anecdotally, what you're seeing is that the parents that have the wherewithal and the ability, the energies to organize an opt-out protest tend to be coming from more middle-class communities. Um, you know, Jeanette Deuterman, who is the organizer of Long Island Opt-Out, one of the biggest groups, told me that you know the, the affluent communities, 
they like their test scores the way they are. They're happy with their schools. And the poorer communities feel too much under the gun and too threatened to organize a protest like this. So that's why you really see it being, you know, among middle class parents and across the political spectrum. Obviously, there's groundswells of opposition to the Common Core among sort of Tea Party activists and, and right wingers. And then there's a very strong, uh, you know, sort of central and left uh, protesters who say that this is, you know, that test scores are the centerpiece of an education reform agenda um, that includes, you know, corporate and philanthropic influence and other things that they don't like. Well, one thing that strikes me is I think that in poor communities and poor schools, students have really been feeling, students and teachers have really been feeling the effects of a, of a test-driven culture for a long time. And in these middle and higher income communities, I think they're just starting to feel the pressure a little bit more. I mean, do you think that that's true, that this is just sort of waking up another group of parents to what it means to be in a school that's really driven by tests? I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I, I'll defer to, I shared a panel discussion with uh, an assistant principal also from the Bronx, a very low-income school. And she said exactly that. She said, I'm so glad, Anya, that you pitched your book at middle-class parents like yourself because it's only when basically the white, whiter, more affluent, more educated communities start to stand up and talk about how their expectations have been violated that this actually has a chance to change because she says, you know, these policies negatively affect my community, but my community doesn't necessarily have the political wherewithal to, to make a fuss about it. Well, another option would be to move away from annual testing. Uh, this has come up in the in the recent the debate that's going on now about No Child Left Behind in Congress. And you talk about this a little bit. But so what's what's your argument or what's the argument for moving away from annual testing and what would take its place? Right. So there's a lot of different ways to kind of um, divide up this uh, this little sandwich here. And, you know, Artie Duncan, for example, is, is threading a really difficult needle where he's supporting state level and district level efforts to cut back on unnecessary testing um, and unnecessary being defined however you want to define it. Um, but at the same time, he and, and his Democratic leaders in Congress are uh, drawing a hard line in support of annual standardized tests for all students. But that's not the only way to go. I mean, there are people who support grade span testing, which is more like what we had in the decades before No Child Left Behind, you know, once in elementary, once in middle, once in high school. So you at least have one set of test scores for every school. And then another way of doing it that that many other countries do is to do sampling, you know, just like the PISA test or the NAEP, the National the Nations Report Card. Those are given to statistical samples of students um, that give us more of an overview of how students are achieving. So there are lots of different ways to reduce the overall number of tests that students take. And the burden of testing that goes along with it, of course, the, the, the extra types of tests that we talked about. It seems like if we took away annual testing, though, a lot of the accountability systems, the way that they have been designed and imagined in the United States, would not work anymore. Well, that's definitely true. I mean, we'd have to rethink accountability. And in fact, that's another proposal that's on the books. You know, I, I shared a, a discussion with uh, Matthew Chingos at the Brookings Institution. And what they're advocating for is for the federal government to keep doing testing as a form of, of fact-finding data collection, but to devolve all the accountability responsibility to the states and say, you know, here's the data, here's the information, and you guys can decide whether you want to, you know, fix up all the schools or support them better or just close them all down or, or institute charter schools or however you want to do accountability, that's fine. And from a social science perspective, it makes a lot of sense to 
divide up the process of data collection from the process of punishment because, as I get into in the first chapters of the book, you know, when you make a measure a target, it's no longer a very useful measure. And that's when you get all these gaming behaviors and other ways that, uh, you know, that schools and districts and states try to game the system up to and including cheating scandals like you've seen in Atlanta. We are really at a moment of, especially with the Common Core tests this spring, we're going to be starting to hear about how students across the country do on those in the fall. We're at a time of change. <laughs> and good, that means good, good things can, could come out of that or not so good things. So I'm curious sort of what, what are the prospects for real change in your assessment after doing all of the work on this book? You know, I, it's hard to say. I think that in some ways what was impressed on me in researching the book is that this is already been a time of tremendous change. You know, usually in education reform, you know, there's there's a huge pendulum that swings back and forth. And oftentimes ideas kind of hang around for decades and then suddenly resurface on the scene. And, and just in the last, you know, 12, 13 years since No Child Left Behind, we've seen not only No Child Left Behind, but Race to the Top, the advent of uh, statewide longitudinal data systems that are tracking and giving way more kinds of information about uh, how students are doing in school, which is another way to potentially implement um, accountability measures. Uh, we've seen the advent of the Common Core and its adoption in a shocking number of states, even though you know others have, always, have also dropped out, the creation of new tests to go along with the Common Core, um, and the advent of this idea of growth measures, that we should be comparing test scores from year to year instead of relying so much on absolute scores in one year. So there's a lot of change, a lot of ferment that's happened already. And the the question of whether we're going to suddenly revise and have a little bit of whiplash around annual testing, um, I think is still up in the air. But I, I would predict that there's going to be, you know, that the next few years may be resembling the previous several years in that the, the large scale and impact of change is going to continue. This is going to continue to be a major topic of debate, certainly on the Republican side when you look at the, you know, the contest for the nomination for president. And uh, I don't think this issue is going away anytime soon. I think one of the reasons that education debate can be so uh, volatile and emotional, actually, is because, you know, at any given time, there are a whole bunch of kids are in school. And at any given time, it could be your kids in school. So whatever's happening right now is having a big, big impact on you and your kids. So I am wondering, you started off by talking, you mentioned your daughter, and how has working on this book made you think about what kinds of decisions you are going to make about her schooling, how you're going to think about that? Well, so so I, I wrote this book partially for a selfish reason, to give myself the, the background and the expertise that I needed to make what I felt like was the best possible decision for her. And I think what I learned most of all is that the best thing that I can do for my daughter is to just chill out and relax. I don't want school to be a high anxiety setting for her. I want it to be a place that she approaches with curiosity and with excitement. And uh, I also learned that the research really strongly supports the idea that as, you know, the product of two educated parents, um, my daughter's likely to do just fine in school. The chances that she graduates high school are overwhelming. So, you know, given that and given that I, you know, choose a school that's not an overwhelmingly negative place for her and that I avoid transferring, you know, a lot of anxiety about achievement onto her, I think that the chances are that she's going to do really well. So the the tips and tricks that I give to parents in the last chapter of the book, assuming that you can't opt your child out of every test or you may not want to, there are lots of different ways that you can help 
your child do better on tests and do better in school and also do better in life in general. And it's that kind of win-win-win that you really want to be pursuing. You know, I got a call yesterday from the city. They are, uh, you know, trying to inform people about the universal pre-K slots in New York. And I'm, as this of this moment, I'm completely gung-ho about the idea of sending her to the neighborhood school. I think that it's going to be an important experience for all of us to, uh, you know, for, for me and my family to understand how the public school system works. And the most important thing at her age is really to be exposed to a diverse um, social setting and context and be able to relate to all different kinds of people. And so that's what I'm hoping for her to get out of school, especially in the early grades. Well, thank you very much. It was great to talk to you about this. Thanks a lot. That was ARW correspondent Emily Hanford speaking with NPR education blogger Anya Kamenetz. You can find a link to Kamenetz's book at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. And you can find more podcasts about higher education and K-12 education. While you're there, browse the archive of more than 100 documentary projects and tell us what you think of our coverage. AmericanRadioWorks.org. We're on Facebook at American.RadioWorks and on Twitter at AMRadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Lumina Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.